Or completely maul his opponent, Steve Dahl. Well, you know, Steve, Steve Dahl was trying to get an offensive going. Wait a minute. But, but what the hell but is going what? on here? But the maul, well, he just got reversed right there. But the mauler runs him down. What are you talking about? Look, look here. Well, what the hell? Wait a minute. Somebody give me a mic. I have no idea. Hey. Wait a minute. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm seeing. This you people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. Are we going to get security here? Where? is Billionaire Ted. Where is the Nacho Man? That punk can't even get in the building. Me, I go wherever I want, whenever I want. And where, oh where, is Scheme Gene. Cause I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll look-alike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him, for billionaire Ted, for the Nacho Man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. 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 Let me tell you something, man. Grapple fans, and welcome to this episode of Let Me Tell You Something, the podcast in which two wrestling fans of different generations discuss the squared circle, its combatants, its associates, its surrounding culture, and take a particular topic or person or figurehead or whatever you want to say as a discussion point for an episode. I'm your co host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is well, I don't know what I want to say that he... I don't think either of us can claim to be the Scott Hall of this story. So I'll just say he's my fellow personal clique member, Simon Cross. Simon, how are you doing today, mate? I'm doing well. Yes, it's uh, it's time for everyone to throw it up with a too sweet gesture as uh, this week we are 
uh, giving discussion to to Scott Hall the man and Scott Hall the wrestler. There's nothing new we can add to what's been said about him in the past few weeks as far as his importance to wrestling. So I guess what most we can do is do sort of personal reflections upon him more than anything. Not claim that we can define his career or anything, but maybe just give him an idea from our perspective how we thought of him going into it. I suppose because you became a fan of wrestling around 2002. Yeah. You kind of saw nothing but the post-peak period of him, really. I was... One of the things that's so crazy, really, when you look back at the previous times of wrestling, like the the 20th century, I suppose, mm. is that so many things were defined by how long things went on for, like title reigns would go on for five, six years. Like Bruno, San, San Martino and all that. But at the very least, during the 80s and 90s, so much seemed to happen in such a short space of time. And maybe the career of Scott Hall is one of those great examples of that. Because it was essentially seven or eight years of not much, never quite reaching what potential people thought he had. And then just him seeming to capture lightning in a bottle in mid-1992. And then, really, after he gets released by the WWE after the failed NWO run of 2002, it was all post-career, really, at that point. He continued to wrestle on and off. But the years of Scott Hall's significance were basically those 10 years. Mm. And 10 years is next to nothing now in wrestling. I think half the roster in the WWE have 10 years' experience there under their belts nowadays. Yeah, I mean, to put it in perspective, I think Cesaro has was there for nine years before recently leaving. Exactly. So imagine almost the entirety of Cesaro's career in the WWE. That is pretty much the length of Scott Hall going from one promotion to another promotion, reinventing both of those. Well, reinventing wrestling at least as as a factor in it on one occasion and you know being one of the key figureheads of wrestling's recovery so what was your first introduction to scott hall then i suppose that's what i'm wondering because like you saw you don't want to say the has-been Scott Hall, but the past is prime Scott Hall, I suppose. So, one of the first wrestling DVDs that I owned was WrestleMania 18. Notably highlighted by, the, you know, the, the, the true main event of Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus The Rock. Um, and on that, the other two members of the NWO are tied up dealing with Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I saw the little pre-match WrestleMania package of him messing around with Stone Cold. The handicap match, including like Kevin Nash's uh, massive elbow drop on a referee to break up a uh, pinfall attempt. And Scott's pretty exuberant sell of the Stone Cold stunner. But that's all I really like saw was just mo- like two moments of, of the match. Because obviously I hadn't seen the feud. I, I just had WrestleMania 18 on DVD. So I, I came into that match cold. So you essentially saw the end of 
everything that Scott Hall's career had built to in the previous 10 years. The co- going back to the company whose repackaging of him had turned him into a star with the gimmick that had made him an even bigger star in another promotion, but had already also was known at that point for being unreliable and essentially being shown to not be able to politic his way out of it this time. And, you know, his first match, his first proper match, uh, they don't put the heat on the NWO, they put the heat back on Austin, and, and Scott Hall loses. And then a couple of months later, I saw, uh, I guess it was his last match. Did he wrestle in it? I think he did. Because I saw Insurrection 2002 at Wembley Arena. Last ever WWF show, because of the next Raw, they were rebranded WWE. Oh, yep, yep. And famously, the show The Plane Ride from Hell. Oh, God, of course, yes. So, and that was one of the things that led to Scott Hall's release from the company. And I'm trying to remember now, there was a match involving Bradshaw against someone from the NWO. But I can't remember if it was Scott Hall or if it was X-Pac. Because I know Kevin Nash didn't wrestle, but he came in from the crowd during the Austin Big Show match. So, I think it was Scott Hall. So, I probably saw Scott Hall's last match in the WWE, unless he had, I don't know, a little match in a reunion program, you know. Yeah, it was his last WWE match, I, I it would have been, if that was the case. Or WWF at match, the time. I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It was X-Pac. Okay. But he was involved, I guess. Yeah. So I didn't see his last match, but I saw his last appearance, I suppose. Yeah, you saw his last WWE appearance. Before he would come back in the future as a nostalgia act. Yeah. So, what was your experience of Scott Hall? Was it TNA Scott Hall? Coming in and out with Kevin Nash as the band? And until the point that he was in the front row, having bought a ticket with the insane clown posse? Obviously, we're during my Power Slam reading years, as I've alluded to in previous episodes, I saw that, you know, they, they try to... TNA tried to recapture the magic by having the Outsiders, obviously known as the band, as you say, like win another tag title, which when I read the um, obituary, that was like the seventh time they were uh, champions together, Hall and Nash. Yeah, it's funny. They were so successful as a tag team, but I don't think people will ever consider them one of the great tag teams. They were essentially the tag team by default because they were never going to take over Hogan's position at the top of the promotion. And I guess they could have had them go for the US TV titles, but within the tag division, that allowed them to feud with guys like the Steiner brothers and and the like, and Lex Luger and the Giant. In my head, I've got the closest WWF comparison being um, the two-man power trip. Yes, but that only lasted for a couple of months. The Outsiders were a thing for, you know, pretty much the entirety of their time in WCW was either defined by them being a team or feuding against each other, or Scott Hall being absent and Kevin Nash trying to get him back. Mm. Well, I was going to say Mega Powers, but that doesn't really make sense because they had the number one star in it. And Hall and Nash, it's weird where they sat in WCW, isn't it, really? The closest equivalent outside of the Outsiders would have been something like Jericho if it had continued on. Yeah. Beyond that one tag title reign. In that they were essentially a superstar tag team. 
So that was your knowledge of Scott Hall, really. It was always just him coming and going out of the main of pro wrestling. Yeah. Trying to find his spot, but otherwise just being one of those ones where it was like you make the yearly death pool betting <laughs> on who was going to make it. Scott Hall was pretty high up on those lists for the longest time, metaphorical or literal. And as I became like more and more of a like a knowledgeable wrestling fan, I learned more and more about Scott Hall's impact on the business, be it through the ladder match or his work in WCW. So I knew how significant Scott was without ever seeing his work growing up, if that makes sense. Obviously, I, I missed that beat of being a teenager around like Pink Scott Hall, but I, I knew how significant it was. So how much of 90s wrestling would you watch, or was it just hard to get your hands on pre-WWE Network? Very hard to get my hands on pre-WWE Network. But were you even curious, though? Yes and no. Pre-Network, I was more a, a fan that lived in the now. When it came to, especially WWE, I was a lot more WWE specific in my wrestling watching pre-Network, funnily enough. <laughs> But as I've mentioned, it's uh, it's things like this series and, you know, overarching access to different things out there, which have broadened my palette. But my palette was very limited to the here and now for the longest of times. So is it a case that Scott Hall doesn't mean much to your personal experience as a fan, but within your just general curiosity and interest and wanting to learn more about wrestling... You're interested in him as a historical figure, but the story of his death doesn't hit you that much because he's not like a part of your childhood or a part of your your youth or your adolescence or your development as a wrestling fan. Yes. It's like I don't have any emotional attachment to Bruno Sammartino, but, you know, I appreciated when he died. That's a significant figure in wrestling passing away mm. in terms of my my fandom of wrestling and like my fan experience of wrestling watching it no but i've met scott hall okay uh i met him in dallas in 2016 i, I offered to buy him a drink and he was very oh man <laughs> I, i'd had drinks at this point okay post ddp first cleanup or it must have been because i think it was around 2016 you went into the Hall of Fame the first Yeah, time, it was hanging it? around with Paige and Jack Swagger. I uh, got a, 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 or obviously Jake Hager, a lovely, another lovely man. But yeah, no, Scott was lovely. Scott was a really nice, charming guy. He's like, did that whole, oh no, you don't have to do that. Still an absolute, like, unit at the age mm. that he was. Um, so Scott's definitely the most famous wrestler I've, like, ever actually spoken to and albeit in a very limited interaction with him i was gonna say what was the extent could we could you script it out almost and we can reenact it (laughs) did you just happen to be at the bar at the same time and you seeked him out or it was just a coincidence no i got to the bar and scott hall was there which was quite cool so yeah it was a very small interaction but he was a very very nice man did you introduce yourself or... Oh, no, I was very much like, oh my God, let me buy you a drink. Can't? He's like, no, you don't have to do that. Okay. So I didn't go, hi, my name's... No. Chicka Chicka Slim Shady. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's like instinct. It's like that guy in the front row with CM Punk that offered him a drink when he saw him. But on the other end of the scale, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And to be fair, well, I think he was drinking that night, but he wasn't drinking to excess, but... 
Well, that was the sad part of reading the obituary from Meltzer was realizing that he hadn't been fully clean during the last few years of his life that he'd essentially fallen off the wagon he'd reacted badly to lockdown that's the bit you know, that got me the lockdown bit really cut me because well that that and just the notion that he spent several days just lying on the ground after he's after falling after he broke his hip yeah yeah it's really sad and i'm glad in a way that dallas diamond dallas page he spent some time with him at least in some capacity before passing but not like that yeah, I think it's just a case of, you know, it's it's hard when you don't have that addiction yourself to know exactly how it works and how it's a lifelong struggle. And I didn't know this prior to reading the obituary. About the killing. Yeah, I didn't know that. I think I'd... I tell you, I maybe had heard that, but in, like, passing, I didn't really, like, look into it, but yeah. I'd heard it in the recap of that ESPN documentary they'd done about him about 10 years ago, where he genuinely looked like he was at death's door. Yeah. Like, he's at a live event, and he's introduced, and he doesn't come out, and then he's literally being, like, physically carried to the ring. And this is 10 years ago, but he looks and he moves like a an elderly person. Yeah. And that was when I became aware of the story that him and another guy got into an argument in a bar... The guy went, in in the story of events, that guy produced a gun. Scott Hall wrestled it from him and then kill, shot and killed him with the gun. Yeah. So it was an act of self-defense, but he was traumatized by it, which you can, you know, I mean... It's understandable. I can't imagine how I would live the rest of my life knowing that. Yeah. You know? To already have that going against you and then you join the wrestling business... <laughs> Of the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. So, had you watched much Scott Hall... Like, when we did the five-star project, the Melts five-star project... Yeah. Um, the one Scott Hall match, unsurprisingly, that gets the five-star treatment was his ladder match with Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 10. So, I'd seen that before, because I had the ladder match DVD. Had you seen the 95 ladder match they had? Uh, I did end up seeing it. I can't... No, do you know what it was? I think that was the one that was on the DVD because the... Um, because that's been... The, the first one was on so many. I think the one they put in full was their rematch. I think. I, I'm not... I'm fairly sure on that one. But I have seen both. I, ha, I have seen both. I hadn't... Um, again, I knew the ladder match for its iconic nature and then sought it out for that reason, not specifically to see Scott. But from that, obviously, I grew... A appreciation of it grew. Of Scott grew. One of the things I appreciated, actually, one of the things I did listen back to, watch back after the Scott Hall death, and this is going to sound very self-centred, but I listened back to the episode where we talked about that match. Yeah. And one of the things I'm glad that we really pushed hard in that episode was that this is not Shawn Michaels having a match with a ladder, which was how I believe Ric Flair described it. Mm. Scott Hall is playing his part. He is maybe the supporting player, but the supporting player needs to be there for the guy to do all the crazy, mad stuff around him. Yeah. The way I would describe it is, have you seen No Country for Old Men? I haven't, no. Oh, God. <laughs> Why don't you see good films? Have you seen... Okay, have you seen, you've seen The Dark Knight. Yeah. So, in scenes like, obviously, the interrogation scene, where the Joker's saying, you complete me and everything, 
or the scene where he kills the Michael Jai White's character, the mob boss. Oh, yeah. And he does the whole why so serious bits. Yeah. For all of Ledger's showing off histrionics, getting all the cool lines, you need to be the other guy in that scene reacting to him that puts across what they're doing. Mm. So Scott Hall being that base for Shawn Michaels, he's got to sell for Shawn when he does. He's got to be in place for him. He's got to agree to do this stuff. Like the um, the scene in Django uh, where DiCaprio like uh, cuts his hand open by smashing the glass. It's it's mm. it's DiCaprio's performance, yes, but it's also the reaction of Christoph Waltz and um, Jamie Foxx Car- and Kerry Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although that does give Scott Hall. A rough ride. I think he plays his part as well as Sean. Well, not as well as Sean because Sean's just flying, throwing himself all over the place. Yeah, but it's not a one-man show. Scott Hall plays with the tension, does some cool stuff, takes some nasty hits from Sean, and dishes them right back as well. And then when you look at the '95 version, I think actually Scott Hall gets more in there because. Sean is actually trying to generate sympathy for himself, so he has to sell. Yeah. And so Ramon is heelish without being a heel in that moment. He, like, works on Shawn Michaels' knee at several points, which is something I wish more ladder matches would include. Yeah, now the the ladder match has changed significantly, obviously, now, and it is a lot more of a fast pace. Yeah. Um, Two men in at a time in the ring, whilst everyone lies around the edge of the ring waiting for their turn. that's again... Yeah, that's the other challenge. They had to do it with just them two, which is so rare now. Now it's like seven or eight people. So you've got to know your three big spots. And, you know, whoever's the more experienced hand in the match will probably be the one that decides how everything works out. Yeah. You know, like in the Face of the Revolution match, I'm guessing Christian Cage was the one that kind of was the leading point in the preparation for the I match. I mean, that's a strong everyone... reason he was in the match. Yeah, and then everyone else throws in their suggestions and he anchors it throughout the throughout the match. If anyone loses their place, he'll know where they've got to go next. And with Razor and Sean, they just had each other. And Obviously, they had done it a few times on house shows. They had a couple of reps, but ne- never at this level. Obviously, it's WrestleMania, for God's sakes. Well, that was curious as well, because you watched... One of the matches you said you watched in the build-up to this recording was Scott Hall having a ladder match, not with Shawn Michaels, but with Goldberg. Yeah, so obviously I knew how pissed off everyone was when Scott, dressed as a security guard, stuns him and causes Goldberg to lose the title to Kevin Nash, uh, ending Goldberg's undefeated streak. So I did want to see how that arc played out so one of the things i did knowing we we were going to be talking about scott was sit down and watch the uh scott hall versus goldberg stun gun ladder match Uh, and scott's great as a heel he's a great foil for goldberg begs off superbly at the end his pre-match promo where he's just a (laughs) arrogant dick is brilliant the match just seems the end seems a bit naff when Bam Bam Bigelow runs in to attack Goldberg and then Scott stuns both of them. But that's just symbolic of 1999 WCW. The shark was being jumped at that point. But no, I thought the actual match itself was a good quality. Um, and Scott, 
like I say, he plays his well role well of being just an arrogant arsehole. And of course, that's him having to carry Goldberg for that, and especially in an environment. I'm I'm assuming that was Goldberg's first ladder match as well. To my knowledge, yes. I guess we'll go now t- towards my experiences of Scott Hall. And I did experience pretty much that whole run. And almost within the perfect sense of, of how the WF would have wanted it. In that I did not know who he was before then. I mean, I'd been seeing WCW stuff. But maybe it was just before... Just after he'd left as the Diamond Stud. I did not see any of the Diamond Stud. I know I saw some Vinny Vegas and Scotty Flamingo and Diamond Dallas Page, and he was actually in that stable with them. Scotty Flamingo's Raven, right? Yes. Right, yeah. We established that in the CM Punk Raven episode. So it just took me a moment to, like, sew that together in my head there. (laughs) Yes. And so I didn't know who he was, and I do remember, because just as out of curiosity, I looked up, and I found at least seven of them, of the vignettes that they filmed before Scott Hall debuted as Razor Ramon, of him walking around the streets of Miami and establishing who he is as a character. Yeah. And that was my first one. I do recall seeing some of those videos. I must have just got a couple of tapes of superstars that uh, a cousin or a friend my cousin or some someone who I knew that had Sky had taped and lent to me. Because mm. that was how I was getting wrestling of any kind at that point. And he was intimidating. He was scary looking. Cause he's, if you look at those videos, I think you could argue that they're the best pre-debut vignettes that the WWE have ever done. There are some other ones. There are ones where they introduced the guys or like established them. So obviously, other ones that you put in contention, there would be like Mr. Perfect. Yeah, he's doing all these things perfectly. But that was really just reestablish. He'd already been in the WWE. He debuted by then, but this was establishing what his char- what it meant to be Mr. Perfect. I can't remember what way round Bray Wyatt was, but that's the only modern comparison I can think of. Well, he'd done NXT. But the WWE Raw, that was the video, you know, we're coming, don't bring anyone you want back montage. Mm. And those were cool. But that was just, that was like a music montage thing. This was just straightforward looking at the camera. I'm this person. This is what I'm like. This is who I am. And I'm coming to the WWF to take out everyone and win the title and all that stuff yeah he's just doing like a tony montana impersonation but it's a really good tony montana and it's not entirely tony montana because the thing about al pacino is that he's like five foot six yeah (laughs) you don't appreciate actually oftentimes how huge scott hall was i suppose because he's so many of his photos he's standing next to the seven foot you know the six foot ten kevin nash so six foot five Scott Hall doesn't look quite so impressive. Yeah, it's it's weird. He always did look small because Hogan's quite tall as well, but he's not by any stretch of the imagination. If he were here now, he'd tower over all three of the guys that were the big guys in that face of the revolution match. Yeah. He's like two to three inches taller than all of Keith both Keith Lee and Wardlow. Yeah. And whilst Powerhouse Hobbs is 
a big lad. I don't think he's more any taller than six foot. No, no, he, he he's one of those like square people. He, he's big, but he's not tall. Big, I, I, you know what I mean. So if Ramon, if Scott Hall debuted in the wrestling now, well, a lot of people have pointed this out that if Scott Hall debuted now and he was in wrestling now in his prime, he would be a multiple time world champion. Yeah, that's more about the nature of world title changes and the frequency of them now compared to the scarcity of them back in 92. And just shit, the, well, do you mean like in terms of both uh, frequency of change and frequency and not sheer number of title belts that are floating yeah, around? Yeah, both of those. I mean, WWE have two world titles, technically. Three? NXT? No. <laughs> and if he were to debut now, he'd be... As big, if not a bigger star than he is. Yeah. Because he could wrestle. Well, that's the funny thing. One of the things I looked up as well after those vignettes. And also, one thing as well. Basically, Carlito was an entire rip-off of those vignettes. Right down to the very last vignette. And I think this was the one I remember watching when I was a kid. Because the whole thing is he's going around and he, like he's eating at a restaurant. And then the waiter tries to give him the bill. And he's having none of it because <laughs> he's, you know, just a bully, the yeah. big bully of the of the block. Essentially, is how they're produ- portraying him. And in the last one, he's walking down the street and he, he's in the market stall and he just grabs a, a peach or a plum. Yeah. And the guy there is going to stop him. He's like, "Hey, you're going to stab me, Esther?" He's like, "No, you're not." And then he takes a bite of the peach or the plum Mm. and spits in the face of the guy and then he does the same thing to the camera (laughs) which is the entirety of Carlito's gimmick yeah (laughs) except he's from Puerto Rico instead of and he eats apples not plums yeah yeah so it was inspiring people even 10 years down the line it's a format I wish they would do more of I don't mean just like Veer whatever his name is running to the camera (sighs) I mean actually establishing what this character is the other one that would be in contention as well, actually, with Scott Hall, as with Razor Ramon, would probably be Val Venus. Yeah. Those were genuinely quite entertaining and very attitude era. Yeah. And, of course, the funny thing was when Diamond, when he was the Diamond Stud, a lot of his character, like Val Venus, was a modern update on Rick Rude. Instead of bringing a woman out to kiss her, the woman would be brought out of the crowd to rip his trousers off. Yeah. reveal his trunks. But what was so fascinating is that everything pre-Raze Ramon is a build-up to that. Even his time in the AWA, where he was being groomed to be the top guy. He was given Magnum Scott Hall to try and, like Magnum TA, cash in on the Magnum PI thing. He had the Tash and everything. And obviously he was an even bigger wrestler than a bigger size than Magnum TA was. And equally as good looking. Yeah. Although the Tash and the Perm didn't really suit him. When DDP reinvented him, and I remember him talking about it at the uh, night at the Glee Club in Birmingham that I went to see him talk, DDP. Oh, okay. And he basically said, I took him, and I made him slick back his hair, dyed it black, got him to grow that stubble beard, gave him the toothpick, and he says that he went into the locker room with, and there was another guy there, I can't remember who it was, and the other guy didn't realise that it was Scott Hall. Really? Because they knew the Scott Hall of the Magnum Tash and the permed hair. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so the Diamond Stub was like halfway there and then the Razor Ramon re- 
semi-repackaging of it with the Tony Montana voice and the gold and the name. I mean, the name. Razor Ramon is one of the very best names in all of wrestling, I think. Yeah. And uh, a, a quick shout-out to Tito Santana, who gave him Ramon. I don't know if he ever felt like saying something about cultural appropriation at the same time, but I guess not. Hey, hey brother, there's money to be made. <laughs> yeah, but it's not Tito's money. Oh, no, but you don't... What's... You don't want to be, like, a dick. And it's it's not like Scott didn't help other people with gimmicks. Allegedly, uh, he's he's the guy who told Sting, hey, that crow guy looks good. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> he was clearly a creative guy. I think a lot of what the NWO was came from him and Nash, not Hogan. Yeah. Then his run as Razor Ramon, what's funny was he started right at the top and then took a slight step down. Instead of being built up to the top, the very first guy that he's feuding when he debuts is Macho Man Randy Savage. And he costs him the world title against Ric Flair. And his pay-per-view debut was supposed to be the main event of him and Ric Flair against Macho Man and the Ultimate Warrior. Mm. But then things happened with Warrior. And then they decided they were going to go a completely different direction and put the belt on Brett. So then Brett Sean, which had been booked for the, for the mid-card, was bumped up to the main event that was steroid trial times wasn't it yeah yeah yeah. and that's another thing about scott hall even though at the times of 92 to 95 was when wrestling was cleanish he still looked good again because of his size but he had a good physique yeah it was actually funny watch looking at it now you realize he had a little bit more body fat just in still in phenomenal shape but now you know if it had been 98 he would have been even leaner and everything but he looked Every bit as good. He didn't look like he was out of place compared to the roided up guys of the ninety of the eighties. Uh, you know, he could have fit in perfectly. Although he did have two tryouts with the WWF in eighty seven and ninety and didn't get there. And you would say, "Oh, how can they turn him down?" But like, like I said, I'd looked at a match he had in AWA with Kurt Hennig, where they were soup. They were like the top babyface tag team in preparation for them pushing. Hall as the singles guy afterwards. Oh uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, Henning was being used as like the incubator for him. Yeah, but then Henning ended up being the guy that they pushed because he was so you know one of the best in ring wrestlers of his time. And at that time, I watched it, and Scott Hall's there to get the hot tag, and it is rough because one of the things I always thought his Razor Ramon and Scott Hall was he had one of the best punches. Yeah, in wrestling, it did seem like an open hand slap, open fist slap. But he made it sound so good in the way he moved. And I always thought the Rock's punches were very inspired by Scott Hall's. If not inspired by them, very similar. And I always loved the Rock's punches as well. He kind of would hold it back and then pop, pow, right in the jaw. And it always looked and sounded good because of how he did the opening of the fist. And then that kind of allowed an echoing slapping sound on the on the face. And it's how he like sort of stomps at the same time as well, like... Yeah, he just did those sort of fundamental things so so good. Because that's what a lot of wrestling boils down to in those days, was just can you throw a good punch? And apparently that's one of Vincent Mann's real bugbears. He expects everyone to be able to throw a punch. I don't know if you remember on a breaking round. Yeah. Just, obviously, you know, his son is Shane, who throws some of the worst punches going. <laughs> yeah, but the key thing you say there is his son. Ah, Sometimes I... the rules don't apply. Yeah. Although not the rules of employment, it turns out. But, but it took him 20 years to get there. 
so he came out right at the st- right at the start at the top. So ninety two Survivor Series first pay per view, he's in what was the main event and then pushed down. Then ninety three Royal Rumble, he's in there challenging for the world title against Bret Hart, which is a great little match. But then after that, he sort of gets stuck in limbo for a little while. After that. they don't know what to do with him. And he has a very awkward match at WrestleMania 9 with Bob Backlund. Ugh. <laughs> it just does not work at all. I can see the characters on paper feuding. Oh, Mr. Clean, Bob Backlund, like, versus... I don't think there was any build-up to it. It was just a time-filler match. But 93 Bob Backlund is weird to watch. <laughs> but, um, Bob Backlund is weird. Backlund in general <laughs> is weird to watch. Yeah, But... Uh, then we get the moment where he essentially becomes the king of the upper mid card from then on. And what's so crazy as well is that he was so well placed as a villain, as a heel, to the point that he's literally called the bad guy. Yeah. But then he spends the majority of his time in the WWF as a babyface as a result of something that you know, if if the online discourse had existed, the fervor that it is now, Razor Ramon losing to a jobber, yeah, on on a random episode of Raw. Oh, that would have melted switch like would uh, have... switchboards, message boards. Well, it just would blow up on Twitter, wouldn't it? Yeah, but that was what they were trying to do at that point. You know, when when you talk about what they were trying to establish Raw as. And they really did hit the ground running with it in 93. 93 was a good year for Raw for the most part. 94 and 95 to 90 and 96 were where it really lost its footing for the most part. Mm. Especially when it was going up against Nitro. But when you think of all the great moments of Raw, that is one of the ones that still to this day people talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a match I have seen, actually, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's just like... You know, we were debating in the recommending matches if 94, 93 counts as Golden Age or not, really. Even though that's not part of that Golden Age period. Like, if you talk about the new gen... If you're defining the new generation of wrestling, kind of like the Ruthless Aggression, that sort of lost mid-period after a boom, then that's one of your key moments. Where, after 10 years of jobber matches, the jobber wins. Well, not even 10 years of drama matches, like 25 years of it, really. It's been done since, but very, very, very rarely in WWE. Heath beating Seth uh, when he and Ambrose were feuding. But Heath's not a jobber. No, but like that, the, the, clo- the closest you'd have had. No one really knew, unless you were like in the equivalent of 93 Internets, that this Sean Walkman guy, the kid, was anything other than just a jobber. Yeah. It will be... Blue Pants beating Sasha Banks, maybe. Sorry? Blue Pants beating Sasha Banks, I think. Yeah, but Blue Pants was an NXT character. My point is, these were established characters. This was not an established character. This was to everyone who didn't follow the indie scene of 1993 and 92. A random... Even, like, for a jobber looking like a jobber. Like, if you had a match between jobbers, you wouldn't expect the, the kid... Yeah. A skinny little nothing. A toothpick of a man against a man that throws toothpicks at other people. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I'm just trying to think of, like, closest equivalents. We don't have to... uh, Yeah, but it's because this was a unique event. 
that means it's hard to find equivalences. Mm. And that's why it stands out. We don't always have to find equivalences. What we're pointing out is that one of the reasons Scott Hall is a figure that people talk about is because of his uniqueness. Yeah, that's true. That's true. To point out that there are things that he's done that are ultimately incomparable are what cement him as one of the greats of his time. Mm. I mean, I don't think you'll ever get a reaction to the you won a war, you got a war. I don't think you could, you could, you can't create that again. Just yeah, but let's let's not go too far ahead of ourselves. Let's still talk about this WWF period part. And what was cool about that was it also was a logical point for him to turn face because he essentially became was somewhat humbled, but he built from it. Everyone was saying like afterwards Scott Hall would have these periods of time where he would lose to some random person. Yeah. But none of them mean meant as much as this one did because that did create the one, two, three kid. And that brought him in as a wrestler, as a superstar, as something quite different to what WF had ever done before. The underdog character. Mm. Like like the one jobber that was able to get out of the crowd, pull that pull out of the crowd and become something. Rise above his station. And all he needs to do is have that one loss to Scott Hall and for Scott Hall to be willing to do it. Well, you do, you do what you're told. But Scott Hall actually knows how to make something out of those things. Scott Hall knows how to make a loss mean something. Yeah. And, you know, all the ones he did, obviously the one he did to Chris Jericho, he had another one to a guy called Hector Gaza. Those didn't mean as much. The other one that meant something, I suppose, was his loss to Hiroshi Tanahashi in New Japan. But we'll come to that a bit later. It was funny, actually. I remember one of the things that I read in a PWI or an Inside Wrestling, one of the Aptomags. Yeah. Around that time, they did a whole article about how much Scott Hall was furious at losing to Chris Jericho. And the Aptomags essentially created backstage storylines of, like, piecing together what happens between what's on screen. And the idea is that after that, he went into intense training and hired a wrestler of Jericho's size and (laughs) and attributes. Like a sparring partner. Yeah, and drilled against him. And then when they had a rematch at Nitro one or two weeks down the line, he beat Jericho back and they interviewed Jericho after the match saying, I just couldn't find any opening. I don't know what happened in between them, (laughs) you know. So those were the ones that were more about just Scott Hall giving someone that surprised people and the thing that you remember is the guy who loses. Yeah. You know, like WrestleMania 10, who do you remember out of that? Do you remember the winner, Razor Ramon, or do you remember the loser, Shawn Michaels? So Scott knew how to do it both ways, really. Yeah, it's one of those matches. I think that's one of the most shining examples of you don't have to win a match to get the right outcome for for your career. One of the key things, though, after that was that when everyone always says, oh, Scott Hall was one of the greats that never won the world title, but he was also arguably at that point the most successful intercontinental champion. Mm. And he essentially was defined by that title, and that was when being the intercontinental champion still meant something. It meant you were very often headlining the B shows going around the towns. So you were a main eventer, you just weren't a main eventer in the Madison Square Garden. You weren't a main eventer in the Philadelphia Spectrum. You were a main eventer in the smaller venue in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Or the venue in Buffalo, New York. And that's still an entrusted role and a significant role to have. And they kept going back to him with that belt. And that belt just looked good on Razor Ramon. Yes. I guess because he was wearing gold already. So... <laughs> 
like you say, it just sits right on him. One of the things I also loved about Razor Ramon, I thought it was such a great look in his design as well. I love that it was the same design, but just different color schemes. And there were all these cool variants to it. He would have like a, a nice... I like the blue one that he has at WrestleMania 11 against Jeff Jarrett. I like the yellow one he had, actually. Uh, his classic one was usually black. Like, that was his de facto one. There's a good purple one he has. Yeah. yeah. All of them look good on him. He just had a great look and great attire. And the Razor Ramon logo as well with the with the Razor you know, Yeah, the Razor blades. Blade. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course comes the NWO. Probably the most important new event of the 90s at that point, I suppose. Because ni- the 90s starts with the the tail end of Hulkamania. Yeah. And there's nothing really to define itself. Like a hotness created within its own era until the NWO happens. And, you know, it is... Fundamentally, if it's just National Hall, it doesn't mean as much. They get, but when you bring Hogan into it, that's great. But Hogan turning heel on his own—if it had been Hogan turning heel with Jimmy Hart as his manager—and you know, it's the '95 WCW roster with the Dungeon of Doom and everything—doesn't mean that as much. Wouldn't have meant. As it much. wouldn't have meant as much because Hogan wrestled quite heely anyway. It's just because he was doing it to bad guys, he got away with it. Well, no, but he never had the cowardice aspect. No, but like... Hogan was really good at all of that stuff. Your back rakes, all, all your stuff like that. A lot of Hogan's moves were... you wouldn't They wouldn't be out of place in a heels moveset. I think it's more because Hogan developed as an aggressive brawler. And a brawler doesn't really care about the rules necessarily. That's why they're brawling. Mm. They're throwing punches and all that stuff when there's not supposed to be punches. I think what helped was it was essentially backing himself up with the, the hot new thing and that's what National Hall were at that moment by going to WCW. But again, I was saying how crazy is like the the microscoping of time and how it actually seems like a longer thing now. When you think, if you would just watch WCW TV, you'd never watch WWF TV. That was the Diamond Stud appearing five years after he'd left WCW. Yeah. And Vinny Vegas, four years after he'd left WCW. And for some reason, the Diamond Stud's now got a Latino accent. But think about that. Think about that. That is like someone from 20, who left the WWE in 2017 coming back. Yeah. It's essentially Cody Rhodes is as close as you're going to get to it if he does come back. and they, But he doesn't really have the, the other guys there that you can do the invasion angle with. Mm. I don't see anyone else's contract expiring that the WWE are going to offer so much. No. I mean, I don't doubt that there will be an element of an invasion aspect to it with Cody Rhodes, but it won't be as explicit in them having Scott Hall essentially do the Razor Ramon voice and the Razor Ramon character mm. to the point that Vince sued them and then produced the imitation <laughs> of Razor Ramon. Oh, God. That moment when they, they the both wish. come out. com Razor Ramon. Yeah. Uh, that is one of like Vince's l- cr- lowest moments creatively. Hands down. And that's saying something. Yeah. But again, that guy going out there, and he wasn't a terrible wrestler, but he was just trying to do an imitation. It was a sign of, you can't imitate it. Yeah. That's Scott Hall. Scott Hall's entire being and his way of doing things. It's like, yeah, it's akin to Evil Undertaker. Like, it, it just, it's just not the same. Well, I don't know. Kane was kind of a, an Undertaker imitation that works, but there were variants within it. Yeah, but Brian Lee, though. 
Oh yeah. Oh, that was what you mean. The under fake. Yeah. That was always meant to be not quite right. Yeah. If again, if you look at it at relevance, Scott Hall's time was, but he was like in those three, he was like number three of that group. He's the one that would take. Not necessarily losses, necessarily. He would lose occasionally, but he was the one that would take the big bumps from Sting. Yeah. When Sting would come in and and Hogan would be at the back not doing it. So I guess he was like the Buddy Roberts of the Three (laughs) Birds element to it. But someone's got to be it, and, you know, he's not... He definitely means a lot more than Buddy Roberts ever did. Yeah. It's not a bad role to be it. Well, of course, you, you know, you, it's like being the bass player of the best, the biggest band in the world. Are you calling Scott Hall Ringo? Well, no, because Ringo didn't play the bass. He's George, if he's anyone. Yeah. But I would argue, but then again, well, some would say anyway, but like Scott Hall overall was a more talented in-ring wrestler than Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash didn't even dispute that yeah. himself. Hall could go in the ring. But again, it's so crazy when you look at him. When you look at that 87 AWA Scott Hall, he can't throw... He was throwing shittiest kind of forearms. And then he becomes one of my favourite punches in all of wrestling. I think one of the things that's significant about Scott Hall was there was an ease of confidence once you get the Razor Ramon thing. It seemed like he was almost like, I got it. This is what I've been looking for, and now I know it automatically. I've got everything I've ever needed. It's just fit into place at last. It just clicked for him. And how perfect it was that that was the time he debuted in WWF. Because obviously he would have been a good fit visually during all of that 87 to 92 period. And whilst that meant he missed out on the biggest earning days. Oh, he more than made up for it. Yeah, I mean, well, he wasted his own best years of earnings at times. Yeah, yeah, he, he did handicap himself there. but He lost millions because of his behaviour. Yeah. But or, or on the flip side though, he what he was uh he would have got the merchant some merchandise cuts from one of the best selling t shirts of all time, so Although it did seem like that Razor Ramon there was a Razor Ramon shirt from the nineties, the yellow one that seemed to get some sort of cultural status in recent years. I've seen Photos of people at festivals with Pitchfork or musicians on stage wearing that Razor Ramon shirt. So there's a chance he could be culturally revitalised through hip-hop and what have you, like Ric Flair was. It fits again, well, you know, hip-hop loves Tony Montana, so the wrestling Tony Montana makes sense to love as well. Yeah, you're right, that, that would gel really well. So, yeah, he was so much of what made the NWO work as well. He was cool, like he was the coolest out of the three of... Hogan National Hall. I guess he was probably the coolest out of all the w- all the NWO guys, really. And everyone, and someone points out that pretty much every NWO guy after that was trying to copy Scott Hall, trying to be as cool as the cool guy. Yeah. Well, N- Nash is Nash is laid back. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. N- Nash has got laid back. It's a different kind of cool. Hogan is just Hogan. That's just like I'm. I'm big dog on campus. Cool. Not. Effortless machismo cool that Scott was. Hogan's like cool because he's the. Hogan wasn't cool though, partly. That was kind of the gimmick. He's air guitaring his way to the ring and everything. Yeah. And he's a bit of a coward. As bad as the NWO. Well, not as bad, but as much of it. It was as much the undoing of WCW as. It's like the rise and fall it can essentially be attributed to the same thing. Yeah. I guess you could argue like how the rise and fall of Scarface can be attributed to the same thing. 
you know, they got high off their own supply. Yeah. <laughs> and Scott Hall was a troublemaker backstage, and he was political figure, you know, he was part of the clique. Yeah. And then he was part of that whole creative control thing in WCW. But he carved a niche for himself from his talent and just there's few guys that just have it just visually like you know they always say oh you look at a guy in a polaroid shot you're gonna go and pay to see him yeah you'd pay to see scott Ray's ramon or scott hall is one of those guys movie star handsome good looks size effortless cool he had it all but he also had his problems and his failings as a person and um as we all do. Yes. The relief is that he semi-cleaned himself up in his last few years, that he was able to, you know, to see him in that ESPN documentary being helped to get come out, and then seeing him make his appearance in the Hall of Fame being inducted as Razor Ramon, not as Scott Hall, which was something Kevin Nash made clear he was not about to do when they, yeah. when they inducted him. But that he came out looking good. The hair looked good. He still looked good. He was in good shape. He threw the toothpick at the camera and it was still effortless. That beautiful white jacket. Yeah. He looked like a man who hadn't had 20 years of... Hard living. Yeah. Hard living. Have you ever seen uh, Resurrection of Jake the Snake? I've seen bits and bobs of it. A friend of mine actually watched it. Yeah. He was not into wrestling. Yeah, it was... I don't, I don't think it still is, but you, it was on Netflix for a time and I watched yeah. it all then. Palmy was always suspicious with everything that DDP does that it's ultimately a, a, a plug for his yogurt. <laughs> but uh, plug all the way if you can at least bring some help, happiness and recovery to people that have suffered. Yeah, it, it seems to work. I think it was just when D- when Scott Hall was around DDP, he was good. Yeah. But, you know, you can't look after someone your entire life for the rest of their life. Mm. But it's good that he had his house in order, I suppose, and that everyone got to say goodbye to him before he went and all that. And that he got those Hall of Fame moments for whatever the Hall of Fame means or doesn't mean. We're not going to get into that. Even having just fun on the indie scene, and it didn't he didn't seem like a tragic figure when he passed away. Yeah. There was tragedy to it that we found out afterwards, but that's also just linked to the past tragic two years that we've been all experiencing in some ex- to some extent or anything. yeah you're right and it like he got he got his moments he do the nwo bit one last time at wrestlemania 31 albeit in a match that made bugger all yeah. sense <laughs> i was shocked when he took that backdrop actually yeah. that was one thing that did surprise me when they did the nwo against dx thing yeah like you say it didn't make sense but it was cool as fuck in, in and of itself in that moment yeah you can look past the vincent man politics bollocks of it but I was shocked when he took that backdrop from Billy Gunn on the outside. I did not expect his uh, body to be able to take that, but it did. Yeah, that's that's the yoga for you. (laughs) You know, that's one of the, I mean, for all the people that have dropped and, you know, obviously both Scott Hall and Shawn Waltman had their moments where it seemed like they weren't going to be around. And, And Shawn Michaels even had some dark days, but yeah, that's the first of that group to fall you know, to there will not be a, a full picture of all five of them again. Yeah. So this is the question I guess ultimately comes to. And we don't want to debate it too much, but is he a person that through himself was influential? And is he one of the most influential people of his time or of all of wrestling history? Or at least modern wrestling history if we define it as nine eighty four 
onwards? Or was he just a key figure that was in the right places at the right time? Did Scott Hall change the industry personally that much? Or did the industry change itself around Scott Hall? Was Scott Hall an active part of that revolution or was he uh, a witness to it? Do you get where I'm coming from? I do. Uh, and I think the answer lies somewhere within the middle. I mean, uh, he was a driving force behind the, the creation of the Razor Ramon character. He was the one that, you know, did the Scarface voice to Patterson and McMahon. But does Razor Ramon mean as much if he'd have had his contract extended in 96 and still stayed in the WWF? I mean, I don't know if he would have ever won the WWF title if he'd have stayed around. He might have done, but maybe the Demons would have become too, would have become a problem. But they'd trust him with the Intercontinental's belt right up to 96. One of the great lost matches of wrestling I contend is that we never got to see the tiebreaker third ladder match between him and Sean, but have it be for the WWF title. Yeah. I looked at it, and the curtain call was the week before the May pay-per-view. Like, if his contract had gone that far and he hadn't got suspended, I always thought that it should have been Sean wins the title at WrestleMania 12, beats a heel turn Diesel in the April pay-per-view, sends Diesel packing, and then Razor Ramon turns heel, and he beats a heel Razor Ramon in a ladder match at Beware of Dog pay-per-view, and sends Ramon packing. Yeah. Like, that would have been my dream booking scenario, instead of him having a double pin draw with Davy Boy. And at the end of the day, like, you look at, like you say, WF in 96, and it would have, it would have been a weird time, creatively, for anyone in that environment. I would have been intrigued to have seen a 96 heel turned Razor Ramon, what that would have been. But I think when he flips over to WCW and he is the first guy that appears, it's it's not Nash, it's him. I, I, I rack my brain to think, could there ever have been a different outsider to have done that? And I, I don't think so. I think Scott fits that role perfectly. Not Mabel? No, not Mabel. <laughs> That's another one, actually, the the alternative universe where they have Sting be the end, third man. Yeah. But it was the right escalation, really, wasn't it? The intercontinental title guy, then the former world title guy, then the guy that was the defining figure of the opposing promotion Yeah, for the past ten years. It was lightning in a bottle, that. And, obviously, I mean, if you look at it, it's one of the great r- ripple effects of the NWO, how much of the Bullet Club was an NWO homage, and then from the Bullet Club comes AEW, essentially. Yeah. So it's the ripple effects are felt to this day. Yeah, he, uh, he his influence lasts. Wrestling fans across the world still share the, the defining, like, high five of wrestling was something five wrestlers who travelled together on the road in the WWF in 1995 during the worst period of wrestling history all did as a little in-joke. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're right. I don't think he's... If you're saying who are the most significant figures of wrestling in the modern era, he's not Hogan. He's not Austin. He's not Rock. He's not Rock. He's not... Then you argue, like, significance insofar as what they are. Do the elite count as significance as a collective because that led to the creation of AEW, which is the most important thing to happen in wrestling? Is he of a status of a Chris Jericho, or is he slightly more significant than that? I would say that's about where he is. I think if you say the most important figures of wrestling, especially in the North American perspective, and if we go modern era, 84 onwards, 
I put Scott Hall in the B tier. Yeah. And there's not many people who would be in that tier that never officially won a world title. Yeah. So, if that's not a sign of someone's achievements, I don't know what it is. He was a phenomenally talented man who, unfortunately, had, like you say, personal failings he had to overcome and sadly didn't. Another thing, I would say that his influence is cultural and business, but not necessarily in-ring artistically. But I do think it's fun to watch back the Breaking Ground episode where he comes in as a guest trainer. Yeah. And the thing that stuck out to me, they do a bit where he's talking to Apollo Crews, and it was like I was saying it last episode about John Moxley and the difference between him and Sammy Callahan. Is Sammy Callahan makes it look so effortful. Mm. And Dean Ambrose, John Moxley makes it look effortless, that it's just a part of his being. I thought it was intriguing watching Scott Hall trying to get into Apollo's head and just tell him to get out of his head. Yeah. Because Scott Hall was always comfortable in the ring. That was the thing that they would say that backstage in WCW when he was at his worst for drinking and WCW being the class acts that they were made that his character. Yeah. That he would be a wreck backstage, but then just as he would be in gorilla position and go out, it would be, you know, it was like the... uh, like that host in Father Ted. Well, you know, you go out there and he's getting get up. Ah, he's fine when the lights are on. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the worst type to be, though, in situations like that. The functioning alcoholic or the functioning addict. Because you get much more of a pass than perhaps mm. you should get, you know? Or it's like that bit in uh, Rocket Man when Elton John's preparing to go out and he's a, you know, a hungover mess. And then just they give him the baseball bat and the spotlight comes on and then just suddenly the smile's there and he's yeah. got performance down pats. It's so clear that there's like a cult mentality within the WWE. That's what they want to produce. Yeah. And they have their style and their drills and everything. And he tells them, and they're clearly told to do all these things, take it very seriously. And I just remember in one moment, Scott Hall was like, yeah, but when you lock up, you don't have to go that tight. I like going quite loose. Yeah. And it's like, clearly that's probably just told them, you know that thing that they say you have to do? Well, I kind of never did that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that would have been the, like a, a 28-year-old Scott Hall being dropped into the WWE power plant. Maybe the problem there now would be uh, the performance center would be that he wouldn't necessarily follow the rules. Mm. So maybe he would have found himself fitting in more in an AEW or <laughs> the like. And there is that, like, criticism of, like, WWE's developmental being a bit cookie-cutter. You you couldn't put that man into a cookie-cutter mould, I don't think. Yeah. I don't think the WWE Performance Centre... They could produce a facsimile of Razor Ramon, but not the perfect form of Razor Ramon that was there. No. Like I said, from pretty much day one, he had it. Yeah. From those vignettes in his debut, he pretty much had it. There's some interesting photos online of him with long tights, and they switched to trunks before he started wrestling on screen. Yeah, it's much better, I think, with trunks. It's it's more like Miami guy. Shows again how just also puts across his size, I think, as well. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other things that we might have missed along the way. Obviously, like, his loss to Hiroshi Tanahashi. I think that's the second most significant, because it was just a sign of this kid's going to be special. And it was... To- Scott Hall that chose to lose to him. Yeah. At that point, the Young Lions would pick up wins, but they'd pick up wins maybe against the bottom junior heavyweights, like an El Samurai. That was like the first sign that they might be yeah. 
moving up. And that would be someone that they probably planned to be a heavyweight as well. You know, if they were going to be a, you know, a Master Watteau was not going to get a win over El Samurai as whilst he was a young lion. Mm. But, I mean, Tanahashi made that little tribute to him afterwards. So it's like when you're charting the career of Hiroshi Tanahashi, that was like his first big win, and it was a sign of this is the first of what will be many to come in the future. So it didn't make him a star like the one two three kid lost did, but it said, yeah, clearly this guy's going to be a star. There's something on it. He's going to be beating a lot more guys like Scott Hall in the future. Yeah, Scott Hall's final t- uh, wrestling match was was a title win against uh, Tricky Taylor. <laughs> well, do you remember how he lost it? No. Because it was like the 24-7 title. How he lost it is he's backstage and Colt Cabana walks in. And it's great. Scott Hall just... You can tell Scott was just having fun at that point and he was enjoying his, his life. And that was good to know that he enjoyed his life until the last few years maybe but he's on the phone and they're making it a gimmick the joke is that he's talking to kevin nash clearly colt cabana walks in with a ref and he says hey scott wow you won that title uh could you do me a favor though could you just read this please and he gets a piece of paper and scott goes wait and he puts on these these glasses and just in that moment he just turns to him and says don't get old <laughs> and then he reads it and colt's got like his hand on his shoulder and he just read that and he goes he read it, I give up. He goes, ah, the winner, a new champion. So it was like, <laughs> Colt had a submission Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, there's not a lot of people whose last official match was them winning a title, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know, I don't want to go into a Mount Rushmore of things, but, like, I suppose there are the obvious ones. Losing to the 1-2-3 kid. The NWO forming with Hulk Hogan's heel turn, I suppose. Yep. Scott Hall coming out and even managing to rock double denim and look good. I was going to say it's Hall of Fame line at the end. I think that's one of the best moments in WWE Hall of Fame history. Yeah, but that's not that difficult. I know, I know, but like, that line stands the test of time, I think. I will stand the test of time. But I think my definitive Scott Hall image that kind of encapsulates everything about him was a gif I've seen quite a few times going around, which is when he's doing one of those many NWO in-ring promos where they just kill 20 minutes just talking. And Obviously, it was when he was also doing all those polls, who came to see WCW, who came to see the NWO, and all that kind of shtick. But at the end of the promo, someone in the crowd throws a cup of Coke or whatever, and it hits him right in his head. And you think that look makes someone look bad. All he did was just take it and just slick back his hair and flick it off with his fingers because he was the bad guy. Yeah. And he was one of the coolest wrestlers there's probably ever been. I think a lot of people would pay a lot of money to tr- to have what he had in terms of just effortless, cool, and like machismo. And presence. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to be the bad guy. But anyway... Simon, if people want to get in touch with you to talk about some more Scott Hall memories and the like, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm sending a Simon Cross free. Free for the number of members in the NWO, originally. And maybe what they should have always been. <laughs> yes. My name's Logan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-F. 
for the A that's the second letter in Hall, and N for the N that's the last letter in Ramon. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put it at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. If you will feel like throwing some money at us. Not Coke cans. Yeah, some of us don't have downside guarantee contracts like the Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are able to finagle for their out of contract with. Uh, then go to our patreon.com slash lmtyspod. For the next episode, we have a five-star match already in the chamber. As Dave Meltzer, a week and a half ago, gave the New Japan Cup quarterfinal contest between Zack Sabre Jr. and Will Ospreay, the five-star rating, and Simon and myself will be here to see if we agree or disagree with that assessment. But until then, there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Thank you for everything you did for us, Scott Hall. And have a too sweet time. Until the next time. pays off. Dreams come true. Bad times don't last, but bad guys do. (laughs) 